Yeah. So should we start? We should start. Okay. Well, first of all, hi. Hi. I'm Carla Silver. I'm the Executive Director of Leadership and Design. You are. And I'm Bill Selleck, Director of Technology at Hillbrook School. You are. Yes, I am. And before we really start talking about today's movie, I think we should take a minute to just note that both of us are yes. wearing pink. Yes, duly noted. Yeah. And why are we wearing pink? Because it's Wednesday. It is Wednesday. And, and on Wednesdays, Wednesdays we, we wear, wear pink. pink. Well, we do wear pink, at least on this Wednesday, maybe because we're recording right before Valentine's Day, but also because as we record today's episode, we've also just released our last episode. Mean Girls. Right. So on Wednesdays, they wear pink. So we thought we'd commemorate the, the moment. Yes. In both real life and bitmojis. Oh, that was brilliant, by the way. Yes. Only you would know how to create friendship bitmojis. Yes. It's like amazing. I've had a couple of people stop me, especially aspiring podcasters. Yeah. And they've said, Carla, where did you download the music for your intro and your outro? Oh. And I thought that was yeah. so sweet because I've been able to say, actually, Bill wrote those. I did. And so I just, I want to say that people like it. Nice. Yeah. So congratulations. Yay. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Once again, I get to brag about my co-host. It's fun. <laughs> okay. Awesome. So we are talking about Rushmore. Rushmore. And I want to say that this is actually one that I didn't think of immediately but when we sort of put out feelers, what should we talk about? It kept coming back over and over again. So for those of you who are Rushmore fans, here it is. This is it for you. And at the end of last episode of Mean Girls, I sort of was bemoaning. Oh, maybe this was the best movie. Could it get better? You did. You said you peaked. I know. I thought I had peaked. And guess what? What? I didn't. Oh, good. No, I think I love Rushmore even more than Mean Girls. Well, great, because we're only five episodes in, so <laughs> God help us if we peaked in episode four. That would have been bad. Yeah. yeah. So this is episode five, so if you're just tuning in, it's a reminder that we like to talk about movies. To talk about schools. And so that's what we're doing today, and today's movie is Rushmore. Yes. So synopsis time. Yeah. Max Fisher is a precocious 15-year-old whose reason for living is his attendance at Rushmore, a private school where he's not doing well in any of his classes, but where he's the king of extracurricular activities. From being in the beekeeping society to writing and producing plays, there's very little after school he doesn't do. His life begins to change, however, when he finds out he's on academic probation and when he stumbles into love with Miss Cross, a pretty teacher of the elementary school at Rushmore. Added to this mix is his friendship with Herman Bloom, wealthy industrialist and father to boys who attend the school and who also finds himself attracted to Miss Cross. So many spoilers. I know. Max's fate becomes inexorably tied to this odd love triangle. That's strange as well. And how he sets up about resolving is the story of the film. Hmm. That's a heck of a synopsis. Yeah, for sure. That was the one from IMBD, so yeah. they usually are a little bit better than that, but yeah. it's okay. That's all right. It does give you quite a bit. Tells you a little bit about Max. Tells you a little bit about his relationship with Bloom and Cross. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm not a huge Wes Anderson fan. How about you? I have come to appreciate him okay. even more in the watching of this film. Oh, interesting. Yeah. As kind of critically looking at it for this podcast, kind of changed it or what? Well, you know, one of the things that you and I do when we watch these movies is we tend to watch them with the captions on. Yes. And so you really start to pay attention to the writing in a way that sometimes you don't when you're just watching a film and then watching it over and over again. And so for me, at least this movie I just felt like the writing was extraordinary and yeah. the lines and the comedy and the subtleness of some of the lines that then ended up just being just so, <laughs> so great. Yeah. So we'll get into some of that in a little bit. Yeah. So I like Wes Anderson. I would not say I'm a fan, mm -hmm. right? Like fan, I think you need to yeah. be like hardcore. No, no. I'm not right. like, oh my gosh, he just released what, you know, no. But um, I enjoyed it. This yeah. was a first time watch for me, not for you. You've no. watched it a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, but I, I didn't stand out to me as a movie we should pick at first. So yeah. I, I, I thought, oh, but then as I watched it, I just fell in love with this movie. I really did. And and Bill Murray is one of my favorite actors. I love Bill Murray. Groundhog Day is probably my all-time favorite movie. Really? It is. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And right. so I love Bill Murray. Um, and so watching him in, in Wes Anderson movies in which he's commonly featured, that is something I, I enjoy. 
Well, yeah. So Bill Murray is Herman Bloom. Jason Schwartzman is Max Fisher. And you know what's interesting about that is that this movie almost wasn't made because Wes Anderson and his co-author, Owen Wilson, who was the co-writer of this movie, they couldn't find a Max Fisher. They just, they had this image of Max Fisher as sort of a young Mick Jagger. (laughs) And they couldn't find anyone to play the role who was satisfactory. And then Jason Schwartzman walked in and had a totally different look, was a little bit more of a young Dustin Hoffman. He walked in and he was wearing this blue jacket and he had made a little patch that he had sewn on, a Rushmore patch, which I don't know if it was the same one that was in the film, but they sort of went with it and they thought, oh, this is a different image, but I think, I think this is Max. I like that. I mm-hmm. like that a lot. I can totally picture him going in for that. Mm-hmm. Also notably, Olivia Williams is Rosemary Cross, mm-hmm. Miss Cross. You know, you had some of the other characters, Seymour, Seymour Cassell as Burt Fisher, who is the, the father of Max Fisher. He's excellent in this. And Mason Gamble um, as Dirk Calloway. Interestingly enough, Mason Gamble played Dennis the Menace um, in the feature film, Dennis the Menace, but now is like a marine biologist, like left acting, left sort of film. So huh. he plays the, the sidekick. And then the Wilson brothers, Luke Wilson. Right. Plays Dr. Peter Flynn. <laughs> kind of a bit part. Yeah. But since he is, um, he is the co-writer. Maybe it was Luke Wilson who co-wrote. Owen Wilson co-wrote. Luke Wilson stars. Right. Got it. Well, Owen Wilson was actually kicked out of his high school in Houston, St. Mark's. Um, so... He and all of his brothers went to St. Mark's in Houston, private school. And I know that Owen was was kicked out. Luke made it through. Oh, nice. Yeah. So Luke got to be in the movie. Exactly. Owen got to write the movie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> and the movie itself was actually filmed in Houston, entirely yeah. on location at two schools. Obviously, the first one, St. John's Prep School, which is where Wes Anderson attended. Oh, okay. And then across the street... From St. John's is, is a high school called Lamar High School, and that was the setting of Grover Cleveland High School in the movie. Gotcha. And apparently they kind of get it out to make it look kind of like an inner city school. Mm-hmm. doesn't really look like that. No. <laughs> but let's talk a little bit about the movie. Yeah. What are the big takeaways, big themes? Yeah. Well, one of the things, I mean, we'll, we're going to talk a little bit about the first 10 minutes of this film in a little bit, but this to me is really a movie about how school can really fail the smartest, most self-directed, most curious students. Absolutely. I mean, here we have Max Fisher. He is the president of everything and he is utterly failing school. Yeah. He's on sudden death academic probation. (laughs) (laughs) That's what the headmaster tells him. We're putting you on what we call sudden death academic probation. And yet, like, he's totally in. He's in he's in everything. Yeah. And yet his his grades are abysmal and he's failing. And I don't know, what does this really say about school and the way it engages incredibly bright kids who have a lot to offer, who are naturally curious? but don't really want to study what's being delivered at school. I think it says that so much of school is about the game of school. Yeah. And people tend to be good at the game of school or not. Right. And Max is is terrible at the game of school, but is really good at the game of life. Yes. Yeah. yeah. The fascinating part, though, is that despite him not being good at the game of school, he still loves his school and he still is like super active in his school. Yeah. I mean, he really talks about how much he loves Rushmore. I mean, one of the lines he says is, I think you just got to find something you love to do and then do it for the rest of your life. For me, it's going to Rushmore. That's so great. (laughs) Um, So we'll, we'll get into the first 10 minutes of movie in just a minute because there's just so much great character development in there. But the second thing I think this movie really addresses is how to manage. And it's interesting because it's not really a school-related theme, but it it was really about how to manage loss and tragic loss. And both Rosemary Cross and Max Fisher have had someone in their life die. And in some ways, they sort of are stuck in that death. I mean, Rosemary Cross lives in her dead husband's house. Right. And sleeps in his bedroom. Yeah. And Max spends a tremendous amount of time in the cemetery. In fact, does he live... Next to the cemetery? I felt like they lived, <laughs> like the cemetery is in the backyard. Yeah. 
<laughs> um, but sort of that final, when we get to the end, but the final play when he dedicates it to the, the memories of these two people, I mean, right. it's like there's some closure around that. So, yeah. yeah. So that, those are some of the, the themes that I, I really pulled out from this, but when it comes to school, it's sort of like how school fails the most motivated, brilliant kids. <laughs> yeah. Well, so before we actually go into the first 10 minutes of it, then like what, what might we do? as people that work in schools and with schools, what's the trick? How do we get the Max Fishers engaged? Do we rethink school to make it a place where the Max Fishers are more successful? Is that where we start? Well, I mean, I think that's a great question. How do you engage kids and make school relevant and also really help students to live at their highest potential? And it's clear from this very, from the very opening scenes that Max does not really care about the mainstream information. In fact, the movie opens with him looking at a math problem, which is, <laughs> I mean, he, he's, he's not paying any attention in class. There's an extra credit question on the board, and a kid asks about that extra credit question, and the math teacher sort of says, oh, well, that's the hardest problem in the world, and, right. you know, if, if you, someone here can solve it. No math homework ever right. for anyone <laughs> yeah. ever in this class. <laughs> which basically, I think, is, is ironic in itself, which is that if someone can solve this, every other piece of homework is irrelevant, which it kind of is anyhow. And not just for that kid, for everybody in the room, <laughs> right. right? But then also, what does that say about the teacher? Right. I was like, here's something you can't do. Walk in. Hey, that's too hard for you. That's yeah. A, that's a weird thing. Yeah. But it, it's sort of a little bit of a dangling carrot. And of sure. course, Max, who's reading the newspaper in this moment, gets up and, and brilliantly solves this random hardest geometry problem in the world. Yeah. And then our first line too, if and only if, and then just goes on and on and on. Yeah. It's a giant geometry proof, yeah. right? Yeah. But of course, this is a total fantasy. It's not real. It's not really happening. He wakes up and he's in this chapel talk at the moment. Yep. But I guess the point is, is that oftentimes the stuff that's most interesting to students is the stuff on the on the side and on the periphery. So how do we bring that, back to your original question, yeah. into the lives of students? Do we throw those crazy questions at them? Yeah, I think that in general, more curious when you're giving them a question that maybe has an answer that's really hard to solve, then let's just learn the formulas. So making school, I think, more relevant and more engaging in many ways, real-world problem-solving, all that good stuff. Um, but I really think that the first 10 minutes is like the most brilliant 10 minutes of yeah. any movie I've really ever seen. <laughs> it definitely sets the whole ecosystem, the whole world of, of who we are, who our people are, what the style of the movie is, how they talk, how it's edited. Mm -hmm. all the things. Yeah. And you get some really good character development. I mean, you really learn, first of all, that Max is at this very prestigious school, but he himself is probably on a major scholarship, right? There's no way. His dad's a barber, although he tells everyone his dad's a neurosurgeon. Mm -hmm. And so there's already kind of like an interesting socioeconomic status question about Max. Yeah, He doesn't really feel like he completely fits in. And you learn later that the way he got into the school was to write a play. Do you remember what the play was about? The play was, he was a second grader, right? Yeah. He yeah. wrote it about Watergate. <laughs> yes. Second grade. A little one act about Watergate. And my mother read it and felt I should go to Rushmore. And you read it and you gave me a scholarship, didn't you? And, uh, and I felt like that was going to be a throwaway joke. But no, we see that he continues to write many, many plays, and we get to see a lot of them dramatized. Right, and historically based plays, too. Yes, yes. <laughs> this opening scene, after that, he wakes up and, and he's in chapel, right? And in front of him is Bill Murray, who's delivering a chapel talk. And Bill Murray is Harold Bloom, and he is a parent at the school, and sort of this wealthy parent who's obviously given a lot of money. Yeah, I, I thought that he was going to be like a headmaster, because there's no introduction. It's like, oh, I guess Bill Murray runs the school in some way. And no, super no. No. I, I love that that they leave that to us to assume. Yeah. He's yeah. not the head of school, right? No. And I think back onto our second episode, we did po Dead Poet Society. Yeah. Wasn't there just a little bit of sort a of like, <laughs> like the kids in chapel and he's up there saying, you go to here, you go to Rushmore because it is one of the best schools yeah. in I mean, the nation. That had to be intentional, oh, right? I thought so. I think so too. I looked it up, but I didn't see it, but it felt like it was yeah. basically a, a mirror yeah. to Dead Poet Society. At some point, someone will talk about it and they'll be like, hey, 
I heard this theory on heads down, two thumbs up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, that's, that is definitely theory. But instead of then going on to talk about the greatness that all these kids should, should accomplish. <laughs> right, right. He totally shifts gears yeah. in like the most surprising line. You were born rich and you're going to stay rich. But here's my advice to the rest of you. Take dead aim on the rich boys. Get them in the crosshairs and take them down. Just remember, they can buy anything, but they can't buy backbone. Don't let them forget that. Thank you. And Max is writing this all down in his hymnal, and he writes, best chapel speaker ever. ever. <laughs> I also love that that was the chapel yeah. message. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, you've got Bill Murray. You learn a lot about his character, Harold Bloom, cynical, sort of like wealthy, just. Well, but also doesn't understand the audience or like what you should and should not say to students. (laughs) Yeah. I don't know. Um, But, you know, he's he they meet. Bill Murray's like really excited by Max sort of says, oh, this guy's really what a sharp little guy. (laughs) The headmaster says he's one of the worst students we've got. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but also, can we dig into that just a little yeah. bit? Right. Worst student we have in what way? Mm-hmm. In test taking mm-hmm. and like caring about like the random page on the next, mm-hmm. you know, math lesson one B, lesson one C. Or math. It's probably numerical. Lesson two, lesson three, lesson four. Sure. Worst student. Right. But really, like he says, what's the quote about Rushmore? Like Rushmore is my perfect yeah, I mean, it's like, I want to do Rushmore the rest of my life. Right. <laughs> and so, like, that just, that breaks my heart that that's described as the worst student. Yeah. That's, I don't like that. Yeah. Involved with all the extracurriculars, loves Rushmore, and then is worst student. Right. I don't like that. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a great tension in the movie. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, but then you get this montage. Yes. Get the montage. Montage. Of all of the extracurriculars. <laughs> so many. You want me to just read a few? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So he is the earbook editor, French Club President, Model UN Russia, Stamp and Queen Club VP, Debate Team Captain, Lacrosse Team Manager, Calligraphy Club President, Astronomy Club Founder, Fencing Team Captain, Track and Field JV Decathlon, Second Coral Master, Bombardment Society Founder, LB Dodgeball, by the way. <laughs> Kung Fu Yellow Belt, Trap and Skeet Club founder, Rushmore Beekeepers president, Yankee Racers founder, Max Fisher Players director, Piper Cub Club. And yet finds himself on academic sudden death probation. Too many extracurriculars and not enough academic study. Yes. (laughs) I like that. So he's failing. And then the best thing is that instead of thinking about how he can apply himself to study more, he just says, try and pull some strings with the administration, I guess. Yes. Like that's how he's going to get himself out of this. And he asks, he's like, can we just let it slide? (laughs) I love that he has the audacity to say, oh, no, no, I'm about to be expelled. Can we just, can we just not do that? Yeah. He says, I think I can take a postgraduate year. And they're like, we don't have a PG year here. And he's sort of like, yet. Yet. <laughs> yeah. I love that. And yet that's not rewarded or appreciated. It no. just comes across as snark. Right. But there's something to that. Or there should be something to that. But this headmaster, what do you think he thinks about Max? Really? I think he hearts? thinks he's the worst student ever because his metric, the way we measure students traditionally, and the way we definitely measure schools, right? You Google a school and you're mm-hmm. going to get their test scores right. as a measure of how good of a school they are. And I just wholeheartedly disagree with that. Mm -hmm. That's not what schools are. That's not who students are, right? They're not a test grade. Mm -hmm. And I think that the headmaster looks at Max Fisher and says, these are your grades. This is who you are Mm -hmm. as a person. These define you. There's just this little part of him, though, I think that must like Max. You think? Why do you think that? Maybe it's later in the movie when he he wakes up from his stroke. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And Max is in the room and he just is like, you know, whatever it is. Maybe it's, there's something, there's something, I don't know if Max gets under his skin or if if there's a little part of him. And then, of course, he does come to the play at the end. He does. Yeah. But when he wakes up from the stroke, does he just go, Fisher? (laughs) 
<laughs> I read that as like, of all the humans to see, this is the last person I want to see. <laughs> and it felt like a very like Bueller. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, let, that's actually an interesting. Did you find yourself doing a little Ferris Bueller comparison a little as you bit. watch this? Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's some similar things in which a lot of the learning goes on, certainly outside of the classroom. Sure. Um, and in the same way that Ferris Bueller's got his hand in everything, so does Max Fisher, but yeah. obviously a lot less cool. <laughs> yeah, no, very less cool. One of the things about this movie is that, of course, there's this there's this love triangle between Bloom and Max and Rosemary Cross, who's this first grade teacher. Yes. She's this sort of, I don't know, how would you describe her? It's like... British, <laughs> British, kind of subdued, yeah, sweet in some ways, but not really. Maybe subtle. Subtle, maybe, yeah. But he meets her because he has checked out this book in the library. Yeah, there's a quote in the book. Yeah, and it's when one man, for whatever the reason, has the ability to leave an extraordinary life, he has no right to keep it to himself. He's like totally inspired. It's this book by Jacques Cousteau. So it's a quote. And he goes to the library to find out who else has checked out this book and who could have written this quotation because it's right. handwritten. And it turns out that it's Miss Cross. And so he then kind of pursues her in a really yeah, funny way. He does. And it, it goes in so many strange tangents, sometimes strange and wonderful. Sometimes for me, it was kind of strange and creepy, creepy and like <laughs> just not, not necessary. Um, a lot, a lot I didn't get. Of their relationship. Yeah. It's like, what? And and is that, I don't know, is that the outcome? Are we supposed to look at that and go, I don't, what? Creepy and I don't get it and I don't want to get it? Yeah. I had a lot of questions about their relationship throughout the movie. And it seems like she has this boundary that she's not going to cross. And yet she's sort of like in a, in a platonic way attracted to him. She finds him fascinating and maybe reminds her a little of her husband who had actually created the beekeeper club when yeah, he was a student. Yeah. Right. And, um, and so I think there's just a little bit of, of sort of interest in him, but yet she has clear boundaries. Like she's not going to get involved with a 15 year old boy. Right, thank goodness. Right. Yeah. And I wonder if that's part of the Wes Anderson movie style is that I'm so used to movies always paying off with a thing. We have their relationship, something happens, and then it ends in a very like concrete, dramatic way. Mm -hmm. And I feel like this had so many small moments that didn't have that payoff. Right. There was definitely this, some ambiguity in some of those relationships. Yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. it's like almost the opposite of Chekhov's gun. Have you heard of this? Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Um, so when you're writing, particularly for movies, I think it was written actually for stage plays. So if you're a, a playwright... If in act one, a character mentions a gun, by act two, they have to use the gun. Oh, uh-huh. Right. And so a lot, nearly every movie we've ever watched will introduce a thing and then that thing has to pay off. Mm -hmm. Right. So that's the principle of Chekhov's gun. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great way to teach stuff to students with maybe a different analogy, mm -hmm. but you can't just mention mm -hmm. a thing. Or if you're going to do a big thing, you have to like actually go back and like work that into just before it. Right. So we always talk about like foreshadowing, like yeah, in English yeah. class, but it's just that if you're going to induce a thing, you have to pay off the thing. Mm. Or if you're going to have a big payoff, make sure it's introduced so that it builds into. And I feel like this relationship just had a lot of moments of not paying off. Mm. It was like, hey, here's Bob Chekhov's gun. And then just nothing. Well, what do you think about? I mean, the movie ends. We're skipping around a little yeah, bit today. Yeah, that's fine. What, the movie ends with them on the dance floor. Yeah. What do you think that is about? I don't know. I think that's, I think that it's this kind of awkwardness where it goes against kind of the type of like, we're so used to a concrete ending mm. and we don't get that. And I think that that's actually the emotion we're supposed to feel mm -hmm. is just this kind of unsettled, like, huh? Mm. Huh? Yeah. Cause I watched it with my son, Jackson yeah. and Jackson and I both at the end sort of looked at each other or he looked at me cause I'd already watched it a number of times. Mm. So I sort of knew how to end it, but he said, so are they supposed to be ending up together? I said, I don't think so. He goes, oh, no, I think they are. As a ninth grader, that's what like, he thought. I was like, ah, he's 15. <laughs> She's been really clear throughout this movie that from the very beginning, she says something like, has it ever occurred to you that I may think you're too young for me? <laughs> yeah, and, and he doesn't seem to care, which yeah. I totally get yeah. as a 15-year-old. Yeah. But then she does things like lets him in the bedroom window. Mm -hmm. 
and lets him lie in her right. bed. In in her dead husband's bed. Right. Yeah. And she's like, oh, let me get your head. I don't know. I feel like if, if a random <laughs> student who I knew had professed love for me came to my bedroom window. I'd be like, get out. I would, yeah, I would be for sure. Get out. Maybe 911 if their head hurts. Well, and then maybe I mean, like he, he be has on the been, porch. He has been hit by a car. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't really been hit by a car, but he's pretending he to says have been. He's been hit by a car. <laughs> yeah. So maybe you let them in at that point. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I think that there's a line and letting somebody in your bedroom window as an educator is a line I would hold. Yeah. Especially when someone has pursued you the way he's pursued her. Yes. He's like totally buying her fish for her aquarium. He actually designs an aquarium, which is eventually what gets him kicked out of Rushmore. Right. So let's talk about that. So he designs, he not only designs an aquarium, he pitches it to Bill Murray's character, yep. Bloom. Yep. And says, you know, this is going to cost, I think it was 30000 Just for the plans. Just for the plans. <laughs> right. Like phase one, 30000 Bill Murray comes back. I'll give you 2500 Right. That's a win. Yeah. So then he goes and actually buys just random fish. Yeah. But right. then they actually start to break ground. It's that moment, right? With like the chopping down of trees. <laughs> On, on half base, of the baseball field. The baseball coach is like, hey, it's my baseball diamond. Yeah, yeah. And that's, that's of course, what eventually gets him kicked out. So he's, like, gone the distance for Rosemary Cross once again. Like, he just, he's going to pursue what he wants to pursue, Max yeah, Not sure. just buy her a fish, <laughs> build an entire aquarium dedicated to her yeah. and, and his love yeah. for her. <laughs> yeah, but right, if we go back to that big theme about how school doesn't, traditional school doesn't fit the Max Fishers of the world. Mm -hmm. I don't know that you would actually pull it off, but like if you're looking for an advancement team member to do some fundraising, get get, Max Fisher, get Max Fisher. Clearly he gets a lot out of uh, bloom for sure. He does, right? (laughs) He pitches $30,000 for phase one gets $2,500. Like that's, that's a win for a school donation. Yeah. It's amazing how much impact he has on the school. Yeah. Not just in the clubs, but I mean, even the curriculum. Mm -hmm. I mean, he gets, Latin to become a required course and actually says, you know, later in the play or later in the movie, when he's talking to Bill Murray and is sort of like putting him down, he's like, I I saved Latin. What did you ever do? (laughs) And this is after he worked hard to get Latin banned. Right. He'd been trying to get rid of it for years. And then when they finally got rid of it, he was just incensed that he hadn't been the one to do it. So he saved it. He goes in front of like the panel of, of all the adults and, and, and basically saves Latin. Well, and, and I feel like you could pick this one, like let's actually dive into this one part of Latin, but I feel like you could take a single thing and actually trace how it appears in the movie in a bunch of super interesting ways. So Latin, I happen to actually look up movie quotes for the word Latin for Rushmore. Mm-hmm. There's so many quotes around Max Fisher saying Latin is awful. We should never have Latin whole bunch of quotes around we should totally have latin we must have latin i brought latin back and then there's a whole bunch of conversations with miss cross where he's like isn't that latin and she's like latin is beautiful and amazing it's the foundation of so much of the english language and he's like oh yeah so he he's all over the place so i wonder how much of that i have two theories yeah is totally just head over heels in love with the teacher Mm -hmm. which is simple yeah but also how much of that is just him like excited about a thing and the next day excited about the opposite of the thing. Totally. I mean, maybe that's one of Max's big challenges is that he can't, can't stay the course on any one thing. Yeah. I mean, he has got his hand in every pot. <laughs> kind of want to dive into the, the love triangle. Here are three humans who all feel incredibly lonely at some level you've got rosemary and max who are deeply mourning deaths of important people in their lives and then you've got bloom who's just kind of a disconnected lost soul he's made a lot of money but is sort of empty inside and they sort of find each other and they They become human and connected and 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 flourish together as a trio yeah i don't even see that as like a love triangle because it's not like they're battling over a woman and it's not like she's trying to decide between you know like at some point max fisher actually like sets them up a little bit to hang out and go on a date and then at the end of that scene we see them holding hands and i don't know that that would have happened without max i don't know if max sets them up he's hugely upset when he hears that they're together from his sidekick dirk calloway right i mean dirk sees them and tells max and he's just enraged right 
So I don't know. But he also set all that in motion. Mm. So is this like the he wants it but doesn't want it, just like Latin? Well, I think it's a good question. And there's this moment where he has with Rosemary Cross towards the, after she's been, well, she resigns and he goes to see her in her classroom. And at this point, she's clearly with Bloom. And he says to her that he's so upset. You know, he really thinks that he had this chance with her. And she sort of points out to him, you don't really want to be with me. You just think you want to be with me. Like he has sort of this fixation on her, but he doesn't actually want to have a uh, an intimate physical relationship with her, right? She sort of calls him on it. She's like, yeah, what? Explicitly. I know. She's like, what, what would you do? Like, you know, and he's like, huh? She's like, what, should we have sex? Is that what we should do? And he's like, totally horrified with that yeah, idea, yeah. right? So it's true. He sort of doesn't have a really great sense of what he wants. I think what he's really looking for is human connection. Yeah. So what do you think about his connection with Dirk Calloway, by the way? What's that all about? <laughs> I don't know where to even start with that. <laughs> He's where? got this friendship. Um, and in some ways, they've sort of become this fab foursome at, at some level. But, you know, like Dirk is sort of this sort of psychic, really. Yeah, yeah. His, his co-pilot on all his adventures. But, you know, there's something. He's, it's his chapel partner. It's his, the person who takes dictation for him when he comes up with a good idea. Yeah. He's an executor. His little buddy. Yeah. <laughs> The hot mom. Yeah, the hot mom. Yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, as as uh, as Dirk, Dirk, who's so loyal to him, as he finds out about Rosemary and Bloom falling for each other, he's like, oh, yeah, and friends like you, who needs friends? <laughs> well, I was going to say, instead of sidekick, I was going to say just, he's the guy with the lines. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's sort of this interesting thing, like he's got this, he's got this friend, but he doesn't really, doesn't necessarily appreciate him the way he should. Well, and for me, if we can go to the big idea about themes of the movie, I really noticed that Max didn't have a lot of peer relationships, mm-hmm. you know, and, and even with Dirk, who was much younger, mm-hmm. right? The chapel buddy, he's the big buddy. Even with that, he really struggled to have any sort of meaningful relationship with anyone at the school that was a student. Well, that goes to speak to another assumption that we often make about school, which is that kids should be grouped by age ability, mm. age range, instead of necessarily other things. And I think it's a perfect example. Like Max really relates to adults Mm -hmm. and he really relates to some of these younger kids. Yeah. But when it comes to peers, you're right. He's sort of at a loss, except he does manage to um, galvanize people into plays. Sure, sure. But he acts more. But it's not a peer thing. It's like I'm the director. I'm casting you. Hey, you know, Booker at 3.30 after school. Yeah, yeah. So where do you stand on that with grouping students arbitrarily by age. Look, one of the things I always found so disconcerting about college is that you went away and it almost felt like Lord of the Flies. Like you didn't speak to any person outside of your your age group, the four years of people that you went to college with. And really adults sort of lived in this sort of other bubble and you interacted with them kind of in class. But for the most part, all you did was socialize with people between the ages of 18 and 21. I actually thought it was like kind of a bleak experience for that reason. I think we're, we're, we make mistakes by grouping people too closely. Yeah, I agree. I mean, certainly with younger students, there's just such a difference in what they're able to do, mm-hmm. you know, between like a five and a five and a half mm-hmm. year old. There's a big difference. Like I, I get yeah. that. Yeah. But I think that we make the assumption that grouping students by abilities is the same as grouping them by age. And because right. we start school that way, right. we just continue, continue it. to do it. Mm-hmm. You're seven or eight. You're, you're a second grader. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's, it's an interesting thing that we do. And it, then when you have a classroom where some kids are reading proficiently mm-hmm. in first grade and some kids haven't cracked the code yet, it's really interesting. Yeah. And it's totally normal. All of those are normal. Yes. None of yeah. them are abnormal. Yeah. Great book. Quick aside. The end of average, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, great TED Rose. talk. Totally. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But a great reading and listening. The the whole audiobook that I listened to was was extraordinary. Like the whole idea that that students and kids and humans are jagged. Mm-hmm. That even you know if you, I don't even think it's fair to say you're good at math, right? Like there's there's so many different types of maths mm-hmm. that you need to be really specific about what they are good and not good mm-hmm. at. And mm-hmm. maybe they'll understand it, but they can't explain it. Maybe it's just geometry or they're really good at algebraic thinking. Mm-hmm. But so often we just reduce kids to, to you're good at math or you're bad at math. 
and it's usually even broader than that. Mm -hmm. Just you're good at school, you're bad at school or you're smart and you're not Mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. And so much of that I think ties into the idea of grade levels, Mm -hmm. right? So why can't, or why do we have to have a first grader reading proficiently be with only first graders? Mm -hmm. It's a weird thing. Yeah. It's interesting too, as you think about one of the things about Rushmore is that you actually see Wes Anderson depicts these two different schools, right? You've got Rushmore, the all boys prep school, sort of the fantasy once again of Max and then the public school. And it's interesting to see co-ed big public school, but it's interesting to see how they're both juxtaposed but also very similar in the way that max immediately once he gets to the public school and kind of like gets into it he sort of reorganizes his life to be like rushmore but at the public school and he meets all these really interesting people there like margaret and and others um who are bright and who are interested and engaged and um you know it's just interesting how anderson kind of both juxtaposes them, but then shows that in reality there's there's more similarity than there is difference. And as we look at Max, he actually is as successful mm-hmm. in each school, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. His passions are still getting pursued at a school. Right. Although, and I was listening to Mean Girls earlier today, and it was funny, we talked a little about the rules. Mm-hmm. Do you remember the scene when he's on the payphone in the public school? Yes, yes. <laughs> Like he can't quite get away with the same things that he gets away with in the private school yeah. as he can in the public school. He's at the payphone and the yeah. guard, security guards like, you know, hangs up on him. Yeah. Well, the security <laughs> guard walks up and he's like, excuse me, do you have a telephone pass? One second. He's like, huh? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, it, I, I, I thought that was really interesting too. And of course, as, as the movie progresses, he's still wearing his Rushmore clothes for he the sure first is. part. Yeah. And eventually after he gets arrested and drops out of school, <laughs> he gets arrested. He gets rid of Bloom's brakes. <laughs> oh yeah. 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 <laughs> and Bloom almost crashes into the janitor. Um, Mr. What's his name? Mr. Blue jeans. Mr. Pocket pants. <laughs> Mr. Little Jeans. Yeah. <laughs> Who's also a very funny character, a little bit part. Yeah, I love that part. Um, he gets Bloom's breaks, and so Bloom almost crashes into the school, and so Bloom has him arrested. But that's sort of like the nadir of the movie for Max. You know, he's sort of at the, his bottom. He, he drops out of school, which you know is like really a big deal, because even though he's bad at school, he loves being in school. He loves school. Right. He's going to go back as a teacher, for yeah. sure. Yes, for sure. <laughs> there is no question. He is probably running a school right now, or working in a school. Jason Schwartzman mm-hmm. is old enough that he could be running a school at this point. Probably. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think he's that playing in a band, though. That would be a fun sequel. <laughs> to actually Rushmore see Max too? grown up yeah. running a school. <laughs> it's probably a very project-based oriented yes. school. <laughs> Who did that? There was a movie that recently came out where everybody grew up, and it was like a sequential oh. 30 years later thing. Is it Top Gun 2 that did that? Oh, well, it's just coming out. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. We're yeah. actually, it, it's in the time that the humans have experienced, you know, from 86 to 2021 oh or something. So we actually see Maverick's career. It happens in real time. Oh gosh. I'm going to have to go right? see that. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, That's a trip. so awesome. So awesome. Let's just talk about schools that have really pushed against this idea of only covering sort of like the content and not giving students choice. And, and also how do you leverage the power and potential of students to do things that they can really do and make learning relevant. Right. 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 So if we can take off kind of our podcasting personas Mm -hmm, for a moment mm -hmm. and actually talk about kind of our professional jobs. Yeah, we can do that. You and I have a really cool Venn diagram moment where leadership and design, Mm -hmm. who you're the executive director of, Mm -hmm. and then me working at Hillbrook, you worked with us to reimagine how we spend time we call that a schedule at a school mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. uh, and we spent two years actually looking at this. And I think the, instead of talking about the big, big picture thing, the one example that we were just talking about is how a first grader actually is able to spend time in other grade levels. Mm-hmm. So without completely blowing up, we no longer have first grade, right? Like that would freak out a lot mm-hmm. of people. What actually happens during language arts time in first grade is that there's three other classes that are doing language arts time at the same time, Mm -hmm. right? So without rearranging all the things and blowing up all the things, first grader in section one can be in language arts with first grader section two or 
both second grade classes at Hillbrook also are doing language mm-hmm. arts at the same time. Mm-hmm. So really, if if you wanted to, and you don't have to, but if you wanted to, during that big chunk of time, there are three first grade teachers. So we have co-teachers, so we, actually, mm-hmm. we have three adults teaching two sections. There's three adults teaching two second grade classes. So we really have six adults that can teach all of first and all of second mm-hmm. grade. And so we built into the system of school and our schedule mm-hmm. and the way we spent time that that first grader could potentially see one of six adults for any type of, of reading. Sure. It's and exciting. Yeah, it is. And you've got this whole, also this whole reach beyond block and reach beyond week that really enables kids to also work across grade levels on really relevant projects. Yeah. And it's not all about being in your fifth grade class. It's saying you got all are capable of solving problems, working collaboratively. Obviously, you're not having usually first graders and eighth graders do this together. Sure. There are obvious developmental differences between first it, yeah, and eighth yeah. graders, but fifth through eighth are able to kind of dig into some of these problems together and, and bring them their interests and also their high capacity at whatever they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. So in middle school, mostly it's fifth through eighth graders in mixed age groups. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And guess what? It works. It works. (laughs) (laughs) They can all work together. I think it's brilliant. Yeah. And then reach beyond blocking younger grades, um, first and second are together, third and fourth are together with how they spend their time. So they're also in mixed age Mm -hmm, groups mm -hmm. and spoiler alert, it works. (laughs) Yeah, no, that's great. Anything else you want to talk about the process of that? Yeah. So, I mean, I didn't personally do that project, but it was done by my colleague, Erin Cohn. Hmm, Shout out to Erin. She's awesome. We do. We spend time actually like doing ethnographic research in a school and actually watching and looking at needs and human needs. And I mean, one of the human needs or one of the human insights is that you don't have to necessarily be grouped specifically by you know, the year you were born, that really isn't helpful. It doesn't actually mean anything, especially as kids develop at different rates. And so it is an assumption we make about school. But if you actually go back and look at school and its original container, it was a one-room schoolhouse where kids were together with lots of different kids. So I think we complicate things by trying to simplify. We don't always do what's best for students by trying to make it easy for the adults. So, and that's, that's, we do that all the time. Yeah. And by the way, the Hillbrook schedule is a little messier than some schedules, but messy in a really good way. Yeah. Right. I mean, real, real learning, real learning as we learn from Max is messy. Yes. And it's also interdisciplinary. Yes. I mean, if you look at all of Max's plays, he's got technology, (laughs) math and science built into that. Lots of history. Tons of history. (laughs) <laughs> Are you imagining the Vietnam War reenacted, <laughs> dramatized dynamite on stage? I ain't even here, Sergeant. I'm in Cheyenne, Wyoming. <laughs> right on, brother. sure if I like that play more or the one with the mobsters and the and, and Dirk Calloway playing a nun. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's a line in there where he's like, what happened to the cannoli line? Max, you're supposed to say forget about it, Sanchez. The old man likes his cannoli. Look, I made a mistake, all right? And I hope you know that was a direct reference to The Godfather. I missed that. Okay, so yeah, yeah. So he's like, why didn't you, ha- why didn't you do the cannoli line? And in case you didn't realize it. I didn't. Max Fisher, or actually Jason Schwartzman, is the nephew of Francis Ford Coppola. Okay. And his mother is Talia Shire, who, of course, played Rocky Balboa's wife, Adrian, and also the daughter in The Godfather. When you see the daughter's wedding at the beginning, that's that's Talia Shire. That's Jason Schwartzman's mother. What? <laughs> a little bit of nepotism, you nice. think, in film. but Just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. 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 Just a couple of really quick fast facts. I do want to just mention that this movie, when Bill Murray read it, he said he would do it for free. Yes, yes. I think I they ended up paying him like $9,000. And the whole budget for the movie was like $9 million, which has got to be really Pretty small. Pretty low yeah, compared yeah. to most movies these yeah, days. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was from 1998, but still, still $9 million. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When it comes to rewinds, I'm totally curious to hear yours. I finally have some. Yeah, let's, <laughs> let's start with yours. What's your rewind? My rewind is the Scottish accent mm. of this character of Magnus, who is sort of the school bully. Yeah. 
And he always has this thick Scottish brogue. And I have no idea why. When Jax and I were watching it, we both were like, what's up with the Scottish accent? Like, I couldn't figure that out. What do you think? But is he Scottish? I don't know. Was it just trying to be funny? You know, Fisher, I've been watching you. Showboat, always talking. Picking a kid like Dirt because his mother's a great piece and then getting nowhere. Like everything you do. Big show, no results. Is he really Scottish? I have no idea if he's Scottish, but why does this character, why is the school bully got this thick Scottish accent? I'm looking up, when did Shrek come out? (laughs) So it's not Shrek. Shrek was 2001. But now I wonder how much Mike Myers was influenced by Rushmore. I don't know. If he's like, hey, there's this like random Scottish accent. I don't know, but it's so bizarre. It was bizarre. And it seemed totally out of the blue. Like, yeah. why is this character got a Scottish accent? And it just sort of drove me nuts the whole time. And then at the end, when, when he sort of offers him a part in the play mm-hmm. to kind of like, I think they've been having this age long feud between the two of them. And he offers him a part in the play. And he says, I always wanted to be in one of your fucking plays. It sort of works, but it sort of doesn't for me. Yeah, it didn't work for me. (laughs) What about Uh, you? I hesitate to call this the rewind because I wonder how much of it is just the style of Wes Anderson Mm -hmm, movies. mm -hmm. But there were, there were a lot of things kind of introduced that didn't feel resolved. Mm. Right. So like we have the stroke and then that just kind of stops. Mm. Right. Like we didn't really dig into that. Right. You know, we have a handful of times with Max and Ms. Cross. It didn't quite resolve. Mm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You know, it feels like we just kind of got vignettes Mm. in a way that didn't feel kind of as cohesive. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I I appreciate that we see Max is a clearly bright, motivated student, Mm -hmm. but we don't drill down as much on the academics. You know, I, I fear that had we gone into the academics more, you know, it would have been too on the nose. We would have been like, oh, he's so bad at academics, but so good at things outside <laughs> the classroom. And I, I would have been on the other side of the coin saying, I wish it would have been just more subtle. And so maybe that is the sweet spot for me. Mm. It just feels like there were there were a few more themes um, of things that I like deeply believe in mm-hmm. as an educator mm-hmm. where Max is really successful. And we just kind of see him kind of act it out, but it's not kind of dramatized mm-hmm. where you have to like really be looking for it. Mm. You know, like one thing I think that is so obvious about Ferris Bueller's Day Off, for example, is that Ferris is like such a great guy and school is so terrible. Mm-hmm. Right. And so the takeaway, particularly for non-educators, is like Ferris is awesome and all school sucks. Right. Right. And so like no matter who you are as an educator, you're like. I love Ferris, but really, like, I don't know that all school sucks quite to this extent. Right. You know, and I think that there were a lot of, like, really big home runs for educators that are passionate and that really, like, see the best in students and bring that out. And I don't feel like that was a theme that a non-educator would have noticed. You mean in in Rushmore? In Rushmore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the adults are a lot, in general, a lot kinder. A lot more honest, a mm-hmm. lot um, less polished. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Uh, he has a number of adults in his and teachers in his life that are trying to sort of help him along. Yeah. Not yeah. just Mr. Cross, but remember his math teacher? Yeah. He's like, kind of like rooting for him in the public school. She's like, yes, you got a C minus. And she like gives him the wink. Yeah. Like, yeah, you're doing it. And, yeah. you know, and at the end, everyone comes to see his play. They do. They you know? really do. Yeah. He invites everyone, yeah. including Luke Wilson comes to the play, even though he's treated him terribly so bad. earlier in the, in yeah. the film. Um, and, uh, he comes and he, he's, he's invited, but he tells him what to wear, right? Yes. Cause he doesn't want him wearing his Don't doctor wear scrubs. scrubs. <laughs> you gotta wear a tie, yeah. <laughs> but everyone shows up. Everyone shows up for Max. They do. I and mean, they do. They yeah. want, it's like, even though he does a lot of crappy things to people, it's like people see that he's like got something good inside. And yeah. he, he's tries to redeem himself. I think I like that. I think one of my favorite things about this movie is actually that way the movie works over time. It makes me laugh so hard. There's so much that happens. And then it's like, they show the time passing by these sort of curtains <laughs> and then they put yeah, the yeah. month on and like, you're like, 
three quarters of the way through the movie and so much has happened and it's like December. (laughs) It feels like it should be, you know, so late in the year. And one of the things, of course, is that because it's filmed in Houston, there really aren't any seasons. Right, right. But then the best line is that he says something like, I miss Rushmore. I miss the seasons. (laughs) (laughs) And there really are no seasons seasons in the movie. Yeah. That's what I mean by there's just so many perfect moments in this film. Yeah. Well, uh, I will say I liked this movie. I love this movie. I did. I liked the look <laughs> and mm-hmm. kind of the the flavor of it mm-hmm. just as much as the actual kind of story. Mm-hmm. There were so many, if we can talk about kind of the style of the movie, I really appreciated just the cinematography mm-hmm. of it. It was interesting. There were a lot of moments where they're just kind of standing and it very easily could have been a photograph. Mm-hmm. And they're just like sitting there in this really wide shot for five, ten seconds mm-hmm. in a way that you just don't get in movies. It was really mm-hmm. pretty just just to see and kind of soak in the scene. It made it feel more real. Mm-hmm. And even the way some some moments slow way down, like he actually yeah. pulls some slow-mo. Mm-hmm. And the soundtrack is really good. Yeah. This is a brilliant soundtrack. One musician, he wanted all of the music to be that musician, but then he sort of changed his mind and the, and the film sort of, the, the sound sort of took over. And a lot of the music is actually written specifically for the, the film too, oh, these cool. little bits. Yeah. And then the last thing, my last thought on this is I really love the editing of it. I feel like most directors would say cut and they just kind of didn't. And so the actors would just continue on a thing. Like there's this one moment and I'm not going to cut to it because there's, you can't hear anything, but like the scene clearly ends and then Bill Murray is walking away. And then out of nowhere, he's just top speed sprinting away from the camera (laughs) and he's like 30 feet away and he's just top speed sprinting and they left it in the movie and it just, it adds so much charm, you know, like it was not tightly edited and I love that they left that in. Mm -hmm. I get the sense that's part of Wes Anderson's, um, sort of style definitely right let's keep the camera rolling and and there are definitely moments in this film that are pretty clearly improvised yeah um and bill murray is a great improviser um in the same way that robin williams is and so you can see some of that right so i'm not a huge wes anderson fan but we know someone who is we do we do and we not only is he a wes anderson fan but he is sort of like a Max Fisher. <laughs> he is. <laughs> um, so I'm excited to have, yeah. we'll have a B-side this month. And our Very B-side well. is going to be with one of my favorite people, my colleague, friend, co-founder of Leadership and Design, Greg Bamford, who yeah. is, uh, has a lot of, a lot of Max Fisher in him. And in fact, is going to tell some stories from his own school days as he was president of many things and not always thriving in the mainstream of school. Okay. Okay. Hey, so um, this is Carla Silver, and I am here with one of my favorite humans. I'm I'm definitely going to take a picture of this Zoom call because to really understand Greg Bamford, you need to see him when he's wearing his headphones. He looks like he's about to land a 747. I am. These are my pilot headphones. I have my wands, and I'm wearing my reflective vest. Great. Well, it's great to be here, Carla. It's great to have you. And the re- the reason that Greg and I are talking beyond, besides the fact that we always enjoy talking to one another, um, is that I have invited Greg to share some of his thoughts on the movie Rushmore. And before we get started on that, um, I just want to say I was watching the movie and I kept thinking, like, who does this person remind me of? And it sort of dawned on me that there was something about Max Fisher that just reminded me of Greg. And it wasn't, there's a lot of Max Fisher that doesn't remind me of Greg, but sort of this very um, creative, uh, incredibly engaged and just involved in lots of things. And so innately curious about lots of stuff and very easily distracted from potentially, you know, some of the, some of the stuff that you're supposed to do. It's like, this is maybe my favorite movie of all time. (laughs) So it was perfect. So I'm super excited to have you on to talk about one of your favorite movies. And certainly now I think one of mine. I'm glad to hear that. I'm glad to hear Mm -hmm. that that Max Fisher won you over. Oh, totally. He's won over many audiences. So maybe I'll just start by asking you, like, tell me why you think why it's one of your favorite movies. I think there's so much happening in this film that's really interesting. I think, uh, you know, 
Wes Anderson, of course, is a wonderful director, and you have this kind of quirky take on the world. I had an experience this weekend watching this film with my 13-year-old and seeing it again through the eyes of an adolescent. And I think part of what struck both of us was how Wes Anderson doesn't pretend that this really is what school looks like, right? The use of fonts, the use of costumes. So many Mm -hmm. films pretend, they pretend they're communicating school, even though you know they're not. Wes Anderson makes the artificiality really transparent. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, there's this feeling of feeling like an outcast, of feeling like you're you're ready for something more, of really um, being simultaneously sometimes precocious and brilliant, but also like so unaware of yourself and your impact on others. Mm -hmm. There's something about that that is so adolescent and I think true Mm -hmm. to the adolescent experience. And I love that this is a movie that is about independent school. As someone who went to an independent school for high school, someone who works in independent schools, it's also about public school Mm -hmm. and it's about what both of those can offer. It's about class and identity in those spaces. Um, And I really enjoyed viewing this movie now through the lens of being an independent school educator um and it's just funny i mean that final that final production of heaven and hell on stage with the pyrotechnics right that moment when he goes up and he's buying a box of dynamite and he says make it out to i don't remember the name of the the demolition company right in tucson arizona like it's so over the top it's so over the top and yet it is i think for so many high school kids the kind of thing we wish they could pull off it's the oh, kind yeah. of thing that we dream about right we're going to pull off this huge grandiose production and it's going to make everyone see us in a new way although it's just it's grandiose it's over the top and yet it's still sort of like just right at the level of it could happen i find it both you know hilarious but also it's a, you know it's moving it's about being an outcast and feeling vulnerable and and the really messy the really messy kind of development that happens in high school where you're not, um, you can simultaneously be brilliant and yet so obtuse and clueless about what you need to do. I, I think there is something to be said about um, taking a walk down memory lane for you in terms sure. of school. So maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. Oh gosh. Well, you know what's interesting, Carla, is when you say, I remind you of Max Fisher or Max Fisher reminds you of me. I mean, it's not entirely a compliment, right? Oh, but it is. It's the good part of Max no, Fisher. I appreciate that. <laughs> but I mean, you know, like like part of what makes Max Fisher compelling to me is his messiness. Mm-hmm. And certainly I think I felt messy as a college student and a high school student. I don't think I'm alone in that. I think what I really related to, and I I had the experience of several good friends after we saw this movie is came out in 1999. I graduated college in 1996, just so you can date me. It was not long after that period. And my friend said, oh my God, this is a movie about Greg Bamford. (laughs) And I think the thing I related to is that what was most compelling to me about college was not the coursework. Mm-hmm. And so often when people say that, they're really talking about the social aspects of college or they meant that maybe they were out with friends too much. And certainly I had a good time in college. I enjoyed my friends. I had a great group of friends. But for me, college was about the extracurricular opportunities. It was about this kind of community you set up um, where you can explore different interests and you can form tribes that are passionate about different things. And that was the driving, that was my driving interest. And I think like Max Fisher, particularly when I started college, I did a pretty poor job of balancing that with my academics. As I went on in college, I got better about being disciplined and understanding how I could do both. But what I really respect about Max Fisher, and it's it's maybe not respect, but relate to, there's such a paradox in his relationship to Rushmore. And for him, the juice is all in the clubs. It's in the opportunity to find a group of people and be passionate about something. I loved the moment where he... He organizes a petition to save Latin and like inadvertently mm-hmm. sentences everyone to studying Latin. Right. Well, he has no interest in Latin. He makes that very clear throughout the movie. He knows no Latin. He's no interest in Latin. He just likes putting the team together, right? Mm-hmm. And and I think that is something that is a lesson to those of us who work in schools. Like, what is it about the periphery of the school day, mm-hmm. in the language of some authors, that is so compelling um, for young people that provides a kind of joy and meaning and purpose that we don't always provide in our core academic classes. What, are we, what is this saying about school or, or what we might need to do to reach students like a Max Fisher? Again, part of what's interesting about this film is that so many films about high school and films that you've talked about on the podcast um, ignore academic coursework. 
right? We have only, I think the one moment I can think of where we see a classroom in action is actually a dream sequence. It's a fantasy sequence that Max has about solving the world's hardest geometry problem. <laughs> um, but whereas most films really, they avoid the academic because they want to talk about the social the social right. world of high school. This is really focused on extracurriculars. And what does, what does Max get from this, right? He gets to pursue passions. He gets to be a leader. He gets to feel connected to his peers. Um, he gets to see things through to fruition. He gets to engage his interests. Um, he gets to try on, and this is so important for adolescents, gets to try on multiple social identities. Mm -hmm. And at first, when I was rewatching this film, I thought of this as a, as really uh, an homage to the possibilities of independent school, right? We have the small school and you can know the teachers, form a friendship with the first grade teacher, you know, start a fencing club. But immediately when he goes to public school, he recreates that whole world for himself. And just that excitement of creating something that has an audience, right? For Max, it's so often about finding that audience, whether it's having this cross come to the groundbreaking of the aquarium that will stock piranhas, um, or whether it's actually having like a literal audience, right, for his production of Heaven and Hell. Yeah. He wants to do something that's real, that matters to him, that has an audience, and work with people he cares about along the way. And that's, for me, the juice that he gets that he doesn't get in other parts of his life. Yeah, well, even in his one fantasy in the math class. Yeah. He's sort of performing for his peers, right? Oh, With absolutely. his cup of coffee and he's up at the board. Right. And even yes. that is like a performance for Max Fisher. <laughs> exactly, right? It's like typical adolescent fantasy, right? Of being recognized by your peers and celebrated. And there's something grandiose about it and like unself-aware. And at the same time, there's something so human. Like, how can we create a school where every child feels seen and recognized for the contributions they bring and they have a chance to share that with their peers? I mean, for me, it's 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 about bringing it into action, right? Like the, mm. the text that he seems most familiar with is a script that he's creating. Mm -hmm. And yet, you know, he's demonstrating his literacy and his competence in all of those performances. Mm -hmm. um, and I think... I think for a lot of learners, right, that's how their their idea knowledge and their book knowledge comes to life is when they actually get to do something with it. Well, I feel like you've personally in your professional career at this point have done a lot of work to ensure that kids have those kinds of experiences. So you're referring, <laughs> right, obviously to my time at Watershed School, which is Maybe, a, yeah. yeah, which is an independent school in Boulder, Colorado, um, rooted in large part on an expeditionary learning model. And I do think schools that are working with kind of real world learning programs is a school where he would have really excelled and found an entry point into academic concepts. I mean, what would it look like for Max to have a school where his production of Heaven and Hell really may be connected to a study of the Vietnam War in a more academically serious way? You know, it, you know how, do, how do we play to his strengths? Because you watch him in action. I mean, again, when he goes to, it's a Grover Cleveland High School. Yeah, that he yeah. transfers to, yeah. you know, mm -hmm. he immediately finds this posse of people who kind of admire him and want to work with him. And this is a kid who has so many of the skills that we talk about in all the portraits of a graduate that we're developing, right? Mm -hmm. He's a collaborator. He's a creative thinker. He's a communicator. Like, well, how can we, how can we bring that periphery of the program into the heart of the program so that he has an opportunity to explore what he's learning and also show what he knows? using those same skills. And in an expeditionary learning school and a project-based learning school, I think there are opportunities for kids to do that because they're working on something that's real and matters to them. And I think about that a lot. That's language that I learned from Doris Corder, right? Mm -hmm. Does, is mm -hmm. the kid working on something that was real and matters to me? Um, and that's what he finds on the periphery of the program. And I think it's time for us to bring that to the core. You know, as I was sitting there with my son watching this movie, he's like, I actually don't really like Max, right? And he's seeing Max as a peer, Right. I'm seeing Max as an adult who can have some empathy for this awkward adolescent. But for my son, as a peer, he's like, I don't really like Max. I really like Margaret Yang. And it was striking to me that he, it takes Max so long to even really notice Margaret, you know? Well, he's very self-absorbed. Exactly. And that's yeah. adolescence, right? I mean, right, that's, how, right. that's how they are. So I empathize with it as an adult, but as a peer, it's kind of unappealing. And my hope is, right, that, that like most of us, he matures out of that yeah. and, and is more aware of other people, his impact, right? Or he's a community activist or he's leading a movement or he's an artist or he's a theater director um it has so many of the skills that we talk about 
you know, for a, for a VUCA environment, right? For an environment that's volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. Max has those skills if he can develop those interpersonal, um, interpersonal strengths. And that's part of what I think a school needs to do too. You know, I wonder if, if Max would have more help with that, if there were more adults around when he was working on his passion projects. And it seems as though, um, you know, the adults are teaching math, but they're not necessarily there to guide him and mentor him along the way. And that's also the, the value of bringing these kinds of real world experiences into the core of the classroom it means you can learn from adults as mentors. And part of our job then help students understand until yeah. so any any last thoughts what else do you want to say about the movie is there anything else that we should um we should know what interests me in rushmore is like to what extent do you see max as empathetic or kind of unlikable mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. he's both he's both. totally he's and you absolutely know what? both when you work with teenagers, you know, and I've worked in high schools for 20 years, like that's, that's how they are. And, um, and I say that with great affection. And I, I think to understand the kind of vulnerability he brings and what he needs from school that he's inventing for himself, I think is, is for me the thing that I pay attention to. And then I also pay attention to the explosions at the end. Cause I just think, Oh, that scene is over the top. Pay attention <laughs> to the montage. You know, you might look at that kid in your school who is struggling to find a place and finding, you know, they're inventing roles for themselves because they're not getting it from the program. And I guess the design thinker me says, okay, like, what can we learn from that? What can we engineer into the program that kids are inventing for themselves um, so that they can find a place to be connected? Thanks so much. This has been so much fun to talk about this with you. And I'm glad it was a favorite of yours. And I'm glad I wasn't wrong when I just sort of had that just little bit of an inkling in the back of my, in the back of my head, just sort of going, why is this person familiar? And I'm glad I wasn't the only person who ever made that connection too. It was great to be on the podcast. Thanks, Carla. That was great. Greg's such a good guy. (laughs) He's just, I love the way Greg just has the capacity to talk about what's could be better about school. What's fundamentally flawed with school. I might start calling him Max. (laughs) I don't know how he'd feel about that. No. Yeah. So let's tease our next episode. Let's do it. Join us next time as we watch and talk about. There are some people in this world who will assume that you know less than you do because of your name and your complexion. But math is the great equalizer. Yes, stand and deliver. Yes. Nothing better, Edward James Olmos, one of our favorites. Also has some bits in the West Wing. He does. Mm -hmm. Yes, he does. Some great episodes. We'll talk about that. Another one that a lot of people have asked about. Yes. All right. Well, thanks. Thanks again for listening. Thanks for joining us for Heads Down. Two thumbs up. 